0: I'm really thrilled to introduce someone who has been a leader in their own community in public health uh, for Canada through obviously a historic and key moment for our country's future and so many people's lives and of course uh, on the relationship with Indigenous peoples in this country uh, and now the services that underline that and underscore the success uh, where it can be built in that relationship so I'm really thrilled to introduce a good friend and someone we all look up to a lot Patty Haidu, Minister of Indigenous Services.
1: Thanks, Patty. Well, thank you very much, Braden. My story is: I'm from the traditional territory of Fort William First Nation, who are signatories to the Robinson Superior Treaty area. I grew up uh, the daughter of a school bus driver, and uh, what would consider what we would uh, euphemistically call those working so hard to join the middle class never really loved that phrase, don't tell the prime minister, but uh, my mom worked really, really hard. And it was uh, it was a very humble um, grounding in, in life. Um, lots of uh, early childhood stuff that I don't need to go into now, but very common for uh, working class people and for people that don't have a lot of money. Um, and so my entire path through my career has largely been uh, focused on helping other people reach their full potential. And uh, so this journey through politics and journey to politics has been really for me about that work of social determinants. And so that's why when I was asked to speak about um, the preconditions for economic success, both on a community level and on a personal level, I was so thrilled. Because I actually think your topic today, No Wealth Without well-being. Um, is exactly what we need to be talking about if we're talking about economic reconciliation. From the very many communities that I've visited over the last two years and the countless conversations I've had over my working career, it's clear to me that uh, without that focus on equity, it's very hard to get to any kind of concept of economic reconciliation. And certainly since I've taken on this role as Minister of Indigenous Services, there is excitement and momentum In this conversation. But I think we have to also have the same excitement and enthusiasm for what I would say Canada's unfinished project, and that is to really honour the commitments that our ancestors, those of us who are non-Indigenous and Indigenous ancestors, made to each other so long ago. Economic reconciliation, in my mind, is only possible when Indigenous peoples are grounded in their own vibrant, healthy ways to the communities that they live in, when people have confidence that they will be able to access adequate, safe housing, that the water that they drink and bathe in is clean for everyone, and that education is available no matter where they live. When communities are connected to their language and culture, where children and families grow up together, there is more confidence and there certainly is more hope. And there certainly is more ability to actually reach uh, one's full potential. It is uh, something I've said often in speeches. uh, You know, when the prime minister asked me to become the minister of Indigenous services, even though as a minister you're fully aware of the weight of the crown, the moment you accept the position, this particular position gave me pause. I had a certain level of discomfort in holding this particular role because, in fact, ministers uh, that held this role of Indigenous services, Indian and Northern affairs, Indian affairs, there's been many names for the work that I now do, those ministers were responsible for the creation and the enforcing tools of colonialism. Not too long ago, the minister holding my role would have supervised a department full of Indian agents who were tasked with enforcing the Indian Act, which meant waves of colonialist policy that decimated families and communities, opportunities and long-standing traditions. Indeed, policy tools that Canada created, designed and implemented were used to systemically discourage and prevent indigenous economic development and independence, whether it was through ignoring treaty rights to hunting and fishing, the control of people moving on and off First Nations reserves, restricting or undermining education opportunities, preventing access to essential financial tools, multiple gender-based violations of autonomy or other actions rooted in a fundamentally racist concept of Canada's relationship with the original stewards of the land. And so what has been the result? Well, the policies worked exactly the way they were intended to, intergenerational cycles of poverty and inequality and a significant gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples in wealth, particularly. Historically, Canada has held up this costly system of discrimination because make no mistake, it's expensive very expensive to implement and uphold racism. And this has undermined Indigenous people's ability to prosper. So whether we're talking about energy or infrastructure, healthcare or finance, Indigenous people's businesses and communities must have every opportunity to fully participate in our economy in a way that's sustainable and consistent with Section 35 constitutionally protected rights. Reconciliation is not just the right and moral thing to do. But it's actually the essential thing to do for our entire Canadian economy to prosper. And that's backed up with data. The National Indigenous Economic Development Board's recent strategy showed the importance of investing in the Indigenous economy. And the report found that closing the productivity gap through better education and ensuring success for Indigenous peoples would add more than $27.7 billion per year to Canada's GDP. $27.7 billion. So as I said earlier, uh, upholding discrimination and racism is very costly. Reconciliation though, necessitates a focus on equity. And so we have to get back to basics, things that really matter to people, a house that's safe and warm, a sense that you know where your next meal is going to come from, a sense of belonging, not just in your own community, but in the region and the country at large. A place to go when you're sick or your child is sick. And so investing in Indigenous communities means investing in the First Nations, Inuit, and Métis mothers, fathers, and children who make up these communities. Because we can't have successful businesses or a vibrant economy when everybody is struggling. So to me, the topic of today's conversation, no wealth without well-being, brings us to this place in time. Um, but addressing equity doesn't just mean looking at those historical gaps. It means entrenching reforms to protect the future. We have to wrap our head around this as a country, that there is no prosperity if we're not all working together, if we're not all focused on uh, prosperity for all. And Indigenous peoples have longstanding uh, rights and uh, entrenched legal rights and a huge amount of knowledge about how to live in this place in a way that protects the rights of the future generations. And so I'm very excited about this conversation. I'm excited to see so many faces from so many different sectors uh, here today. And I'm excited about how we can move together uh, more fairly and more compassionately and certainly more equitably. And uh, I look forward to the conversation. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Minister. I really appreciate those remarks to kick off this panel. And to join the minister on stage and continue this conversation, I'd now uh, very much like you to join me and give me a warm welcome to the president of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Alika Lafontaine. Give it up for him. And where is he? There he is. As well, please give a warm welcome to the stage to the CEO of the National Aboriginal Capital Corporation Association, Shannon Matatawabin. Thank you very much.
2: This is a, this is a really important panel for me. I've been uh, with National Aboriginal Capital Corporation's Association as a CEO for uh, more than six years. I'm I think I'm working on my seventh year. I just signed a, a, a three-year contract to extend my, my, uh, my work at NACA to continue advocating for uh, business development for our indigenous communities. Um, but before we get to, 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 to some of the questions that I have for our panelists, I'd like everybody to just uh, introduce themselves first uh, fully so that everybody knows who we're, uh, who we're hearing from today. So I'm to start with that, Yeah, Thanks for that. Um,
3: so I'm Alika LaFontaine. I'm president of the Canadian Medical Association, first Indigenous president in its 155-year history. Um, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Um uh, my grandfather was Napoleon Lafontaine. He was a Metis activist, a founding board member of the Association of Metis and non-Satis Indians of Saskatchewan. It was the precursor to Metis Nation Saskatchewan. Um my my family was never really involved in healthcare. I was the first person on either side, my monster of the Pacific Islands, my dad's Metis from small town Saskatchewan, uh, to ever get into healthcare. And so uh, it was it was overwhelming for me to get involved in a system. That was very different than what I grew up with, you know, everything from the ways that my grandparents would teach me about healing and and uh, kind of working through different problems to, you know, the the way that things happen behind the curtain when we're making decisions about access and and the the racism that I noticed very very early on in my training. And so, uh, it's a pleasure to to be here as a, a part of this discussion and uh, hoping to really root it with my own personal and uh, uh, professional experience. Thank you. Minister, is
2: there anything else you wanted to add?
3: I think, uh,
1: I think I've think i introduced myself, uh, so thank you, Shannon.
2: All right. Thank you for being here. I just want to say thank you to the uh, Organizers for Canada 2020 for inviting me to participate. I think this is a really important conversation. We're, uh, this, this, this particular uh, topic of wellness that leads to prosperity is such an important topic because it's, it's quite a mountain that we're climbing. There's no way that we're going to get the prosperity without our people being ready for it and being healthy and having the services that they need to ensure that they're thinking about a future. Uh, My history is, uh, I'm from uh, James Bay. Uh, My father is Edmund Matatawaben. He wrote a book called Up Ghost River. Uh, It talks about his residential school experience. Uh, His survival ensured that I am sitting here right now, that I have an opportunity to help our people. and we're going to go through some questions. And, and I think uh, we want to have it as a conversation. I'm going to participate as well. Uh, I'll ask the questions, but uh, I also have stuff to say, so I want to <laughs> jump into it. Um, let's, let's go out this challenge, first of all. Uh, we are far from parity. I think we heard some of the, the indicators. It's two to three times worse off than, than the rest of Canada in our communities. But I wanted to ask the minister, where do you see the that lack of parity most account
1: Hey, well, I like like all social determinants of health, they intertwine. So you often will get asked this question: What's the most important social determinant of health? And I think that's been part of the challenge of the federal government. Is you know, uh, one year we make an investment in affordable housing, but then there's not a concurrent investment in another area of social determinants that will will help boost up that particular area. And I remember speaking to an Indigenous leader about this, and he said, we're never going to get anywhere until we have all of the social determinants of health invested in so they equally rise at the same time. And it totally makes sense. How can you learn in a school if you don't have a place at home that you can call a safe space to study? If you're sharing a house with 10 people, 15 people, some of them children, some of them adults, and you don't have a room and you don't have a space. And how can you, uh, you know, uh, focus on your education if you have a chronic illness that can't get treated in your community? How do you, uh, as a mom, run or operate a small business if you're not sure you're going to be able to feed your kids that month? And so we can't talk about social determinants of health as, you know, which is the most important. And I think so that's the challenge. The challenge is those investments have to be concurrent. And we have to wrap our heads around this as a federal government, but we also have to wrap our heads around this as leaders, that in every space there is an opportunity to work in equity. This is uh, obviously a huge role of the federal government from a funding and, and fiscal responsibility commitment no matter what space you're located in, there's a way that you can be a participant in leveling those play fields.
2: Thank you. The question for you as well, um, what, what, which uh, determinant do you think is?
1: You know, I'll maybe
3: take a step back and I, I'm gonna reframe some of the discussions that we had because I think we're, we're moving in the right direction. But when we talk about social determinants, I think what we're actually talking about is infrastructure. Why are there not school boards? on reserves? Why do we not have coordinated health regions that integrate First Nations and Métis and Inuit communities into the way that they practice? Why is it in Nunavut that the first community consultation on TB didn't happen until 2017? Mm. You know, so I, I think that historically, when it comes to health in particular, you know, there, there's been this othering, you know, mm-hmm. pushing away. And it made sense for governments to do that from a practical point of view, depending on which province you're in, you had a 5 to 20% discount on the cost of care because you literally did not provide care to folks. You know, mm-hmm. um, I'm aware in several provinces of policies where provinces would not invest as a matter of course mm-hmm. for health infrastructure on reserve. Um, Redford in, I think it was 2018 or 2019, Oh no, it would have been 2016 because she was out of being premier by then. But uh, Redford actually had a statement where she talked about Albertans, including First Nations and Métis people in the province. Like the premier actually had to say, treat these folks like they're Albertans, Mm -hmm. even though they live in Alberta. And so I I think sometimes we we layer abstraction onto the actual discussion, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Social determinants are about creating infrastructure for local economies, having grocery stores on reserve, having, you know, a drugstore on reserve. So at 11 p.m., you can go down the street and get Tylenol for your kid that has a high running fever. It's about having access to health locations. So you can actually go to a hospital, you can go to a clinic. I've never seen this study done before, but I have noticed across Canada that if you have a small town and a First Nation, no matter its size, the clinic is always in the small town even if the First Nation is many, many times larger. So from an economic infrastructure scale, if you only invest in infrastructure outside of indigenous communities, of course you're not gonna have good schools. Of course you're not gonna have well-run health systems. And so I, I think the the narrative that I'm finding increasingly that ties together social determinants and, and the rest of the discussion is that historically, we just did not invest in First Nations, Métis communities and uh, Inuit communities. and As a result, we have shifted towards this crisis response where we have problems bubble up until they're unavoidable. We go in with a crisis team, we provide an enormous amount of care, and then we leave and there's nothing left behind. Mm -hmm. And we know from international experiences of doing this in countries where Doctors Without Borders goes and UNICEF goes into, et cetera, this is not a system that actually creates better care. It simply creates faster cycles of crisis. And so one of the things that I really love about the transition over the last few years is a shift towards actually building infrastructure, a- actually investing in indigenous communities. And I, I think if we're going to get to that, that other place where we actually fix the social determinants, we have to get to a norm where the Costco gets built on reserve, where when we're talking about building the hospital and we look at the hub and where people actually migrate, First Nations in the middle of it, you should build it on the First Nation. Okay. Thank you very much. And
1: can I just add one little thing on that? Because I think there's a really great example, and that's Whitecap. You know, in in Saskatchewan, and in fact, the the Saskatchewan government credit where credit is due um, has invested in a clinic in Whitecap. It's a huge population. Not only are they serving Whitecap residents, but they serve the non-Indigenous farmers all around them. And so, there's an integration that's happening between Whitecap. It's not perfect, but and the non-Indigenous communities, and it's because. In the case of uh, this particular clinic, it's, it's, uh, it's an investment that the province has made uh, under the premise that it will serve the entire region. And it's building capacity for white cap in terms of creating healthcare professionals. So there's a spin-off spin-off effect in that there is an opportunity now for white cap residents to enter the healthcare field because they have a clinic on, on First Nation. And I think it's a really great example.
2: So Alika, let's talk about the health and medicine aspect you've been instrumental in uh, in the strategy to advance health transformation in first nations what was the catalyst for that work and uh how is that strategy evolving
3: so the from 2013 to 2017 i was part of something called the Indigenous Health Alliance and it it had its origins in Keisaku's First Nation Key First Nation and Cody First Nation in um, southeastern Saskatchewan uh, i was invited in by uh, Someone that I I highly respected, you know, Senator Ted Cusance used to lead the Senate out of the FSIN. And he sat down a group of us and he had done work with my dad. And so my dad kind of nudged me and said, can you help Ted out? And so uh, we were sitting around in a room and they started asking the question, you know, why is everyone so sick on reserve? At the time they were having a violence crisis, they were having an opioid crisis, which still continues on today. and. I had just finished my residency. I'd been in practice for a couple of years as an anesthesiologist. I had had the opportunity to participate a lot with uh, quality improvement, and I noticed that a lot of the things that we talked about is just infrastructure we take for granted didn't exist within key Cody and kisicus. And the, the question that, that I brought up with a couple of the other participants was, why is everyone so healthy just across yeah. the way? You know Why in CAMSAC are people having better outcomes? It's the same population same exposure to environmental contaminants. It's the same in, in many, many different things, except one one person is on reserve, the other person is in camps act. And that shifted the discussion away from, you know, asking why are we broken towards why is the system broken? And I think with, with leadership, there's there's a very small part that has to do with you and a lot has to do with the luck of who's, who's around at the time. Uh, we had a very receptive government. We had you know, folks within the bureaucracy that were very motivated to make change. And as a result, we started having conversations about quality improvement, patient safety. We started talking about patient-centered care, you know, things that we had brought into mainstream medicine a decade before, but it just not talked about within our communities. And uh, things kind of uh, scaled out from there. We had uh, more than 150 First Nations at one point being a part of the alliance that so was, I think it was more than 30%. We had Anishinaabe, Aski Nation, Manitoba, Kuwait, and Okamakanak, and uh, the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations. Um, The government uh, set aside $68 million for healthcare transformation in 2017. That's led to a lot of initiatives, including, uh, you know, the health region that the Southern Chiefs of Manitoba are, are trying to set up. And people really asking a different question, instead of saying, well, what is wrong with me that I'm so sick? To instead saying, why is our environment so different? Than the environments that other patients get to access, and is there a way to actually make it the same? Because I, I think at the at the core of it, equity. Unless you build things in the same way, it's it's impossible to get the same sorts of results.
2: Minister, education remains a challenge for First Nations. Uh, I know that education has been very uh, a big focus for you. Can you share a little bit about your work and some of the recent? Uh... Successes you've had.
1: I'm reluctant to tout our successes because they're early, and I would say that we're still not really at equity. You know, um, even though I talked about per capita equivalency, um, the challenge with a per capita comparison is that if uh, if what you're trying to do is close a gap, then actually you need to invest even more than per capita. And so we continue that work as a government to look at ways that we can support partners to have this this financial support, but also the practical support as they transform education systems um, to meet uh, the needs of students in, in community. And you know, I think the challenge, and I'm looking at Val Gideon here, who's like longtime fighter, I would say the survivors of the department who are also the advocates, those are the ones to watch. (laughs) Um, and I think the challenge is that, uh, we still have a system that's very controlling and so, you know, and Val's nodding, so I'm not hurting your feelings, but, uh, I note this in the work that I do through through the kinds of changes that we're trying to implement as the government. You know, there's a real resistance and it's not just obviously Indigenous Services Canada, it's the central agencies like Treasury Board and Finance who, you know, are very used to counting pens and ticky boxes and really not looking at very good measurements of outcome. And we need to uh, sort of I think as an entire government really focus on outcome measurements that are self-determined. Uh, that's a hard shift for a government that is really, really uh, about counting the ticky boxes. You know, we transformed emergency management under duress, I would say, um, just uh, a, a year and a half ago uh, through through work that I observed in community where, you know, I met with the chilcote Okay, great group of people who fought off a forest fire uh, through historical knowledge of the fire season, the forest, uh, all the things I have no knowledge about, uh, but they, uh, you know, sat with me and told me what they did. They were in active litigation with the federal government because some of the expenses that they incurred, by the way, saving their community through an entirely volunteer base of people in the community, were considered ineligible. Um, so they were suing the government. They were they, were, they wanted their two million dollars, or so. And uh, I said, well, this is crazy. Like you did the job. You saved your community. You're saving the government. You know, millions potentially billions of dollars in rebuild costs, and you know, n- not without a lot of hardship, hardship and, and heartbreak, of course. But they got the job done. And it was that conversation that inspired me to say, we need to transform the way that we think about this. That's not so um, formulaic, you know, uh, whether or not uh, people bought t-shirts for their volunteers or not should not be any of our concern as the federal government. And so I use this example to tell you that this happens in pretty much every space. And our challenge as the federal government is to count differently and to help work with part and to work with partners to ask them, how should we count together? What matters to you? What kinds of things do you want to see coming out of the work that you're doing to transform your community and act accordingly. Yeah,
3: just, just to add to that, I, I think I think one of the things that I've realized after being in this space for so long is that there's a lot of things that we take for granted that are just rules when really they aren't actual <laughs> rules, right? Totally. Uh, they're, they're just the ways that we act and the ways that we evaluate information. And our, our biggest advances, I think, in healthcare, and I, I really love the phrase rewiring. Um, I, I might steal that. I'll, I'll give credit where credit is due, but um, the, the rewiring that's going to happen is us really questioning: Do things make sense? If you look at some of the non-indigenous work that, that we do across the country with uh, pan-Canadian licensure, you know it doesn't actually make sense to the average person asking the question of how are people licensed and regulated for it to be jurisdictional anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, you have an incredible amount of mobility across uh, provinces and territories you cannot provide care to a patient that you saw if they moved to a different jurisdiction because of the way that we license. But the, the biggest challenge to that is that there's ingrained and entrenched stakeholders mm-hmm. benefit off of the existing rules. That's right. And that's the actual momentum that you have to get past. And I, I love the statement that's been said in, in the previous panels that, you know, uh, indigenous peoples are the solution, right? We're not your problem, that's right. right? And there's a lot of creativity that can happen within indigenous communities because they don't actually have to follow these same rules because they don't have the same sort of historical remembrance. That's not a part of their corporate culture, Mm -hmm. you know? And so people can be very flexible. And going back to the question of, are you actually solving the problem, right? You had a fire, you put it out. Well, that's what we wanted you to do, right? That's what
1: you wanted to do. Yeah.
3: and, And how can we help indigenous peoples across the country whether it's First Nation or Métis settlements or Inuit communities, really embrace the power that they already have to make change. There is a lot of flexibility on how you can set up healthcare on a reserve that people don't have to ask permission for. Mm-hmm. I give you one example, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta is going around signing agreements with some First Nations because they've realized they do not have jurisdiction there. So I'm not going to pull on that thread anymore, but you can imagine that there's a variety of very creative things that First Nations can, can do. Now, obviously it needs to follow a certain standard. Right. It needs to uh, adhere to certain things that economic markets require, you know, for physicians. I mean, you'd, you'd have to have some sort of regulatory structure. You'd have to be able to have liability coverage, et cetera. But First Nations are not restrained in how they go about doing things. Now, the future is collaboration. So making sure that we work closely together so we're all not just trying out random things just to see what sticks. <laughs> Uh, but instead, drawing in each other's wisdom, each other's uh, you know long track record of of doing lot. Well. I think it will make a lot of a lot of sense. And to a great degree, I I strongly feel that Indigenous peoples, particularly in the area of health, are going to lead in the next couple of decades. Uh, new ways of providing care that's going to be much more effective because they don't have the shackles of history.
2: Mm. Thank you. I had a recent experience. Uh, I, I was helping my community, uh, Fort Albany. They were uh, evacuated to. Niagara Falls because of flood waters in the in the river and this happens to a lot of communities for different reasons and I think fires are uh, are, are one of them right now but after you see a community that uh, is generally put into houses that are sp- sp- spread out and there's a, there's a there's a little bit of uh anonymity to that but then you put them under a the hotel then you're putting a spotlight on everybody and uh I I had to I was a liaison so I was helping the community um, transition from the community uh, into the community of Niagara Falls. And there's a lot of social issues. I had to kick in a door to to help with an overdose situation. And I saw a dead person inside that door. Now that affected me immensely because my whole job has been to try to ignore that and just say, prosperity, prosperity, more capital, uh, more programs and services. But we cannot ever discount that we need healthy people in order to look at that far place and this is a pervasive issue in in the community and 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 that person luckily uh, got a squirt in in the nose and i didn't know about this and came back to life but i wanted to ask the minister because of your experience with that how pervasive is that in the community and in all canada
1: well i mean look uh You know, 150 plus years of colonization and contact and oppression and uh, exclusion results in trauma and uh, intergenerational trauma. And I can tell you that, uh, you know, that's not no community that I have visited has not talked about the needs for better mental health supports and substance use supports. But I will tell you this. The conversation is shifting, and I'm really grateful for that. You know, this I spent many of my years prior to politics thinking and writing and working in this space. and i I'm excited to see the premise that many First Nations leaders are starting to uh, challenge, if you will, that somehow Western treatment uh, solutions, um, for lack of a better word, are going to get this community or their community out of this crisis. And community members are starting, Community members and leaders are starting to have conversations about alternative models to deal with the, um, the trauma that causes people to want to relieve their pain. Let's be really clear. Uh, and doctor, I don't want to take your space. You know a lot about uh, drugs and treatment, but opioids are a really effective pain reliever. You know, they're a really effective pain reliever for physical pain and they're a really effective pain reliever for mental pain. And in fact, your body sometimes doesn't know the difference. And so we are seized with an opioid crisis in this country, in North America, um, we're not unique. First Nations people in some cases have worse rates of quote unquote substance use and addiction. But I would challenge us all to think about the loved ones in our lives, all of us, every single person who is struggling with substance use. This uh, this 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 is the challenge of our time to figure out together, how we have uh, better outcomes. So there are great, um, there's lots of great research in this space and there's lots of great um, thinkers in this space. And the challenge for us, I think, and for First Nations leaders is to be bold enough to choose different paths. You know, sticking a 12 step treatment center in the middle of a First Nation may not be the solution um, that you think it is. Uh, Of course, uh, people are desperate And they want you know everybody if you've ever loved anyone who has a substance use disorder and i certainly have what you want most as a family is somewhere you can send their loved one away and six weeks later they come back fixed isn't that what we think of when we think of treatment we're like oh my god you just need to go to treatment we're gonna send you to treatment and then when you get back you're gonna be back to the person i want you to be but it never works that way it never ever works that way and so I am really excited about the conversations I'm hearing in first nations communities that I think are going to have benefit for non-indigenous people. Cause by the way, the treatment industry, and this is my own personal opinion. I'm not, not endorsing this as a government in Canada, but it's not working that well for non-indigenous people either. I just want to say Shannon on, I know how traumatizing that is to see someone who has died as a, of an opiate overdose. And I'm thankful that the person was revived, but, uh, Please take care of yourself because those are serious those are serious um, vicarious trauma injuries and uh, you spoke about it in your words, and I think uh, it's important to take care of ourselves when we see that. Mm. but there's great work happening it's starting and I, I think our job as the federal government is to foster that that innovation and again to take risks you know with communities to say you want to look at this in a different way. We want to be there to support you with the tools that you need.
2: I can Alika.
3: You know, I, I just to extend, and I, I do agree with a lot of what you said. You know, why why do overdoses happen? Well, it's because you switch your drug supply and it's no longer safe. You have a mismatch of whatever proportions are in whatever mix that you're you're being treated with, or you had a, a era of sobriety and then suddenly you're giving yourself fentanyl. I mean, I give this stuff every day to people. I mean, I anesthesiologists are the are the drug kingpins of of the medical field, but um, I. <laughs> I, I think when you're looking at what works in our communities, what are we finding is having a, an enormous amount of traction on the land healing, mm-hmm. you know, things that increase social cohesion within our communities. Um, everyone probably is aware of that that study that they did where they had rats in cages and yeah. one of the Park. things of, of, of uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and Rat Park was the next thing where you had water and cocaine and the rat just couldn't stop drinking the, the water laced with cocaine. But then there was the Rat Park follow-up where they found that if you had other rats inside the the cage, if there were other things for them to do, if they were a part of a community where there was, you know, there's a vibrant ecosystem for them to live and exist in, they didn't actually go back to the water-laced cocaine. They actually liked the connection that they had with other rats, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I think when you're looking at, at people, it's it's very common within uh, Western medical approaches to, to separate the body, the mind, and the heart, mm-hmm. right? And you know, why do people take drugs? It's because they're hurting, right? It's because of trauma that happened to them, trauma that happened to a loved one, or traumatic experiences that they inherited from folks that came before. And how do we resolve that? Well, we deal with the trauma. You know, we we heal people's hearts. We we help them to link up their mind and their bodies again. You know, in communities where you're dealing with forest fires and floods and you don't have a school system and you know, you have Uh, inadequate access to to health services or very unstable health services where a doctor only comes, comes by once a week and there's no evacuation plan or planes or helicopters. You have to go through multiple layers of approvals before you can get someone to fly in and transport someone out who is dying right in front of you. Of course, you're going to turn to drugs, right? It's, it's the way that you manage what's going on in your life. So how do you fix that? You actually fix the social determinants like we've been talking about. You know, you provide these other outlets for people to deal with. With the trauma that, that's going on inside of them. And I, I think that we're seeing that more and more uh, in, in the way that we're approaching the opioid epi- epidemics. And I do think in our communities, it's multiple times worse than other places. The reason behind that is that we lack the infrastructure that mitigates those effects uh, for other folks who don't live on reserve or in Métis settlements or other communities.
2: Mm, thank you. I think that leads well into this next question. Well-being is not limited to health and education. It also calls for a holistic view. Uh, I have some thoughts on this yet. I'm curious to hear from each of you. What pieces of the puzzle do you think are missing? What aspects are we not considering? The minister?
1: That's a hard question. Um, I think Dr. LaFontaine said it well, um, and it makes me think of Gaymar Matei, who said, you know, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. You know, oftentimes when I'm in a in a room with indigenous leaders, um, I'm reminded of the importance of the spirit, and uh, and uh, and the and the how in Western culture, uh, even though we have religion, we somehow weirdly are able to disconnect it from that sense of uh, spiritual wellness. And I think it is that holistic model that uh, we're missing. We're missing as a culture, you know, uh, indigenous communities are struggling profoundly. So are non-indigenous communities uh, struggling profoundly in a different way, in a way that is being driven by um, all kinds of uh, environmental disasters and consumerism and disconnection from each other. There's this great book written in the 80s called Bowling Alone. And it predicted where we would be now. Um, You know, this book was noting, this author was noting the decline of public participation in spaces like churches and uh, collectivism, uh, uh, rotary clubs, various different kinds of ways that people and community come together to celebrate culture, to celebrate each other, to be part of a community solution to a problem. And this book said that as society was fraying into really uh, this very individualistic way of looking at things, people were getting more and more unhealthy, um, spiritually unhealthy, emotionally unhealthy. When I look at the strength of indigenous communities, it is that commitment to each other and that collectivism, that idea that community matters, that family matters, that um, family is broader than the nuclear family that Western ideology has tried to impose on indigenous culture. Um, that we have a different way of looking at uh, the challenges of a community. And so for me, I think that one of the most moving things that I, uh, that will really bring me to tears from time to time is thinking about what uh, we lost, actually, as colonizers, when we imposed patriarchy and colonialism on an entire group of people who knew how to live in a far healthier way than our European our forebears. Um, I went to the Pope's apology uh, in Maskechis, Uh, you know, many, many people. I couldn't stop crying, and it wasn't because of the Pope saying all the things that he said or didn't say. It was because of this sense of the loss that we all suffered as a result of this oppressive system that Europeans brought with them. And so could we aspire to coming closer together? could we aspire to forgoing any phrase that is some version of these are not our people? You know, when you hear someone say that's a federal responsibility, what you can interpret that as is these are not our people. When you hear a municipality say that's a federal responsibility, what you can interpret that as these are not our people, but we are each other's people. We're stuck here together and we are each other's people. And I think that there's such promise in reconciliation because uh, non-Indigenous people will get healthier too.
2: What puzzle is missing, julieta <clears throat> Yeah,
1: I, I,
3: I think that I, I, I really agree with that answer. And, and the, the way that I've often looked at healthcare is that it, it worked in the past for what it was, The world changed around it, and as a result, it's not working for anyone anymore. And we keep on trying to apply the solutions of the past for problems that we no longer have. And in some cases, the solutions are actually the problem. You know, how often do you hear about the opening of a new hospital? Well, there's no one to fill it. There's no one to work there. And so that made a lot of sense when infrastructure was our issue, and we didn't have physical space or equipment or other things. But uh, we continue to lean into those those solutions that, you know, don't match the challenges that we have today. And the the part that I think is really failing in healthcare is people, right? And it's not that people are failing. People just can't carry the burdens of what they're being asked to carry anymore. You know, when I first moved to Grand Prairie, uh, we did Friday, Saturday, Sunday call for anesthesia. And you were the only anesthesiologist in the entire hospital. And we had a catchment of 400,000 patients. they coming from BC and Northwest Territories in Northern Alberta. And I remember talking to the, the department head at the time, and I'm like, oh, this is my first job. You know, is it going to be busy? And he's like, oh, it'll be fine. I worked for 66 hours. Oh my God. The, the final case, I actually fell asleep. But I had a nurse who'd been working for 20 years. She said, go to your machine, set stuff up. I promise I know when things are going south. I will wake you up, but you need to close your eyes. And I leaned my head against the... While in 30 minutes later, I woke up. You know, if, if you look at the burdens that we place on indigenous patients, not only do they have to figure out how to get out of their communities, they then have to figure out which door to walk through. And then even if it's the right door, how do you talk to someone who's not racist? How do you talk to someone who treats you like you're lying or labels you with something that isn't what you had? You know, and I, I think that in in talking about like racism in the healthcare system and, and the real value of folks in the system looking like people that reflect the populations that they work in. I remember being a resident and, uh, I mean, part of my Métis ancestry is OG Cree and like Cree people point with their lips. Right. And I remember the first time I did it with the patient, they're like, where's the doctor? I'm like, Oh, it's over there. Yeah. It broke so much tension. The person started laughing and they're like, Hey, where are you from? and yeah. all that stuff. We realized we were second or third cousins, but it, it was, it was like a weight had been lifted off their shoulder. Guess what? I found my people. You know, and as a result, I was able to bridge for them relationships that they otherwise would have either been afraid to develop or didn't know how, you know, suddenly I was there in the medical system. I was the person who would actually tell them what was going on. And I'd say as, as president of the CMA, that that's one thing that I've really appreciated over the past year. You know, you're taking an institution that's 155 years old and you're going into spaces where people look at you and they say, you're like one of us, right? You know, and and you lean back and you actually start telling them about what goes behind the curtain, just telling them bluntly about things. You tell them about the power that they already have, you know, and you walk away from these conversations where the people now start to believe that they can fix the system. And I think that will be our biggest challenge in rewiring all these different things, uh, whether it's in the area of economic reconciliation or the different ways that the world is changing. People have to believe that we can change things again. We have to believe that we can connect with people across the way even though they may not agree with our ideological stances or they may have been very very aggressive in the past you know we have a lot of anti-vax people in across the country in northern alberta where, where i work there's a significant amount and i'll tell you i've been yelled at coming on to shift they don't know anything about me and they're screaming at me about how unfair they've been treated or other things i give them space to yell i let them yell i tell them they should be upset because it isn't fair that you feel this way you shouldn't feel uh, that your voices are being heard, et cetera. And inevitably that transitions into thank you for helping me. Thank you for letting me yell. Uh, one of my, one of my uh, experiences that i always remember as a physician is having a, a patient come from uh, far up north. And they had been in this kind of cycle of trying to figure out how to get access to care for two years. They had talked to 24 people, but they had never talked to an anesthesiologist. And we're actually the ones who make the decision on whether or not you can proceed with surgery in the institution that you're in. And it was very clear that this person was not appropriate for the site that we're at. They had complex medical conditions and a lot of things could really go south after. And I started to tell them that, and they started to scream. And this person was a full head taller than me, You know, had a couple of feet on on both their shoulders, a very, very intimidating. The nurse walks in and says, do you want me to call security? And I, I know yelling when people are frustrated and I know yelling when I should be scared. Mm-hmm. And I, I told them, no, it's okay. They continued to yell yell for about 10 minutes talking about their whole story. And then they sat down and this, this giant of a person buried their hands in their head and started to cry. Oh. And I put my hand on their shoulder and I said, it's okay. Like, we're going to figure this out. I will make sure that you get what you need. And... At the end of the conversation, they weren't happy that they weren't being done, but they did say that you are the first person who ever let me yell. I have been thrown out of rooms. I've been thrown out of clinics. People would not let me be be frustrated, and thank you. And I, I think I did that to some degree, but I really, really try to make space for that now. And I'd say for any of you trying to make change in Indigenous communities, yes, there's a long history of mistrust that's that's earned. You know, Indigenous peoples are wise to the way that things work. You know, they have been betrayed in other things. But I will say if you come with an open heart and you give people space to be human, right, to have reactions that are actually reasonable. On the other side of it, I mean, you'll have some of the deepest, most meaningful relationships that you could ever ask for.
2: Thanks. Thank you. Really hard to follow that up. But I I, I want to say that everybody in this room is here for a reason. You all want to participate in ensuring that there's some economic reconciliation. The mountain is huge and it just seems like that hill gets higher and higher all the time. The, the the pressure on the federal government to try to solve all these problems is, it's not only on their shoulders, it's on each and every one of us. And we all have organizations and we all have organizations Uh, and and non-profits and and the corporate community has a responsibility to ensure that the Indigenous community has all the services, that they have equity and and, and well-being so that they can think about the future. I used to deliver uh, business programming directly to uh, Indigenous entrepreneurs and um, I was a cheerleader trying to build up their confidence but really dealing on a day to day with people who are trying to survive. They weren't thinking about the future. And we have a big mountain to climb. We have to look at all options for capital, for, for, for supporting communities, the chiefs in the, the, the room, thank you for all the hard work that you do to try to bring prosperity to your community, because that's going to what that's, what's going to lead to, uh, ensuring that there is well being services in the future and that the communities continue to be prosperous and healthy. Um, I think we're out of time right now. I just wanna say that uh, you all have a role to play and I think that we're not gonna get there without you. Uh, you have to be our allies. You have to advocate for us. We have to work together to find these solutions so that we can uh, ensure that we have prosperity in the future. Thank you. Thank you.